Cartier, Rolex, Gucci, Prada, Jordan, Adidas, Bottega Veneta. At eBay, it's real or it's getting the fake out. eBay's team of luxury authenticators make sure you never get faked over. Watches inspected by watch aficionados. Sneakers checked by legit sneakerheads. Handbags examined by handbag connoisseurs and jewelry in the scopes of experts and gemologists. The details inspected. The fakes rejected. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay's authenticity guarantee. Everyone deserves real. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome to Who, What, Where with Hillary Kerr, your direct line to the designers, stylists, beauty experts, editors, and tastemakers who are shaping the ever-evolving world of fashion. I'm your host, Hillary Kerr, and today I'm joined by the incredible fine jewelry designer and entrepreneur, Danielle Sherman. Danielle's company, Sherman Field, is known for creating phenomenal hand-linked chains, one-of-a-kind photo lockets, and the most astonishing stone earrings and rings. In addition to her reputation as a fashion insider beloved designer, she also has a next-level resume that includes co-founding The Row with Mary-Kate and Ashley Olson and serving as creative director for Eden. She's here to talk all about it, from how she got her start in the industry when she was just 16 to what to look for when investing in your own fine jewelry. It's all coming up on Who, What, Where. Hi, welcome to the show. I am so excited that we're finally sitting down. Thank you, Danielle. Aw, thank you, Hillary. I'm thrilled to be here with you. So this is going to be fun for a variety of reasons. First of all, I'm so excited to talk about your beautiful, brilliant, incredible jewelry brand. But on the off chance that not everyone knows your full history, you have this amazing past. Like you are the most insider of insidery, fashion, authentic visionaries, and you've had the most incredible career. I'm hoping that you can give our listeners a little bit of an insight into your background and sort of your history that prepped you for this moment. Well, thank you for the intro. I'm so excited to be here. As you know, I'm an avid listener and I listen to you <laughs> weekly. So this is just a delight. So I like to actually proceed the fashion background because yeah. I think so much of what I've been able to accomplish extends from how I was raised, being born in Los Angeles, being raised by my mom. My father passed away when I was really young. So I had to take the reins from age five on and become the homemaker and the prepper and the preparer and the dinner maker, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, I always was also making things with my hands. So mm -hmm. I was taking classes at Joanne's Fabric when I was 12 years old. It's amazing. Sewing with all the old ladies, getting McCall's patterns, Vogue patterns, et cetera, from very early on. And then at the same time, I was also making jewelry. I was sourcing rosary beads from flea markets and recrafting them into necklaces. So even though I am Jewish, 
I would love working with rosary necklaces because who doesn't? They're so beautiful. Mm -hmm. That was kind of my background in like making things since I was really, really young. And then I had like a one year when I was an actor. Not really. I was barely an actor. But I auditioned for a Lindsay Lohan film, The Parent Trap. And I landed a very small role. And that role funded then my first business when I was 16. It was like a leather accessory business. So at 16, what are you doing making leather accessories? And what does that even mean? So like Dolce Gabbana, in the 90s, late 90s, they were actually making really big leather-studded belts and oh, yeah. armbands and <laughs> grommets and all this hardware. And before that, for some reason, I would love going to hardware stores and like picking up random things. And part of my idea was I want to create really bold, dramatic pieces so I found a shoemaker and I found a leather supplier on Western here in Los Angeles. And I would go to the leather store on the weekends. And this is before I could even drive. So my mom was driving me on the weekends and I would source leather, work with a shoemaker. And lo and behold, we crafted like leather belts studded with grommets and armbands. And once I could drive, I then there used to be a book of wardrobe stylists. Yep. And you would call the wardrobe stylist. So I'd go one by one alphabetically and just cold call and be like, hi, like octaves a few lower because I felt like my voice sounded and it still sounds like I'm 16. But I was like, hi, like my name's Danielle. Like I have a jewelry line and blah, 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 blah. And eventually those that believed in anything I was saying said, okay, come to Fox Studios and meet with me. So during my free time, I would go and meet with wardrobe stylists and then rush back to school. It was wild how I managed just before Google Maps. You're with your Thomas guide, like looking things totally. up. That's crazy. You're like printing out from yeah. MapQuest. <laughs> but like I still got lost half the time. And yeah. then I'm like rushing back to school and trying to make my chemistry. Cl- like it was wild, but I love doing that. And at the same time, I then went to like the new mart. So there's in downtown, there's like the new mart and kind of the old mart. And the new mart would feature like younger designers, et cetera. And I like hired a sales rep and she represented me and she was selling my leather accessories to like stores here in Los Angeles. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was just wild. I have many, many, many embarrassing stories of sending my samples in like plastic Ziploc bags to John Ashe from Fred Siegel. Like the stories are endless of always embarrassing myself, but kind of figuring it out. But I eventually got a few meetings and my leather cuffs were on like the Dixie Chicks. And I can't even remember all the musicians that I would attempt to cater to. And But that was short lasting. So the Parent Trap funded this leather accessory business and I had gotten injured in sports. So it was like perfect for me to dive into something. And then from there, I went to NYU and was always interning for multiple places, but nothing fashion related. Not that I was anti-fashion. I just wanted to explore yeah. both my academics and also art and other things. So that's why I chose NYU. And then I was in Gallatin, which I know many of your people on this show have graduated from. So I could create my major and take courses at Tisch for costume design while taking art history courses at CAS. That's incredible. Yeah. So that was great. Being in New York was incredible. And then from there, I had like a brief paying job, which was hard to find out of school at Tahari ASL. And then the row, that was in 2005, I co-founded with Mary Kay and Ashley. And then from there, I joined Alex, originally worked with him on Runway, and then launched T for him as a design director for men's and women's. 
And I was there for five and a half years. And then after Alex, I joined Eden, which was co-owned by LVMH and Bono and Ali Houston, his wife. Right. And there we were producing in Africa. So it was incredible because from all the companies I've worked at, from domestic production all the way to doing things in Asia to doing things then in Africa, it was incredible and inspiring. Well, that's like really a global experience of manufacturing and process and understanding the way that everyone works, which is different depending on region. Absolutely. I mean, that's an incredible and comprehensive foundation to have. Right. Just like the way that when you were at NYU, you were going after diversity of experience there as well so that it wasn't solely fashion all the time, although it seems like you made a pretty hard pivot into it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did. I mean, thankfully, I always was working with patterns and manipulating them and finding out why you need a dart in a certain pattern to create shape for the bus, etc. Like I learned by mistake. And because I was crafting things with my hands and learning on a singer and doing all of those things. And once I was kind of thrown into those positions of sink or swim, I mean, at times I sunk and at times I was able to swim. So there's definitely the pitfalls and then the achievements that we all win. But I think just having that kind of background definitely prepared me. And then being raised by a single mom was like, God, you have to have drive. You got to figure it out, you know, and you see maybe your mom not always being able to do what they love. And it really forms you as an individual. So I think I was gifted with the fact that While I suffered from something that was really tragic when I was really young, I was able to then work that into my advantage later on in life. And it's also interesting, too, because you have experience in a startup mode and then working with more established brands Mm. and then working within a larger corporate environment, which is working with Eden. It's like LVMH owns it. Like That's a different infrastructure, even if it's not directly with that brand. So it's fascinating to see like what a well-rounded experience you had. I mean, I've only learned. I remember reading something that Jenna Lyons once said, because when you're done learning, it's time to move on. And that was kind of her way of always pivoting and changing and growing. And I was like, well, that's such a smart way of thinking about one's career. It's like you always want to grow and evolve and learn and be challenged, right? So I think part of all of those moves and those decisions to kind of move on stemmed from that mentality. So obviously you had a very entrepreneurial side, given the fact that you were starting your own businesses and working at such a tender age. At what point did you start thinking about doing something for yourself? And why were you interested in thinking about jewelry and fine jewelry specifically? Well, after I had left Eden, our family, we moved to LA. I had an infant at the time. And the first thing I did was actually just open up a consulting company because I knew if I was going to help support the family and also keep the creative juices flowing, like I still need to be doing something. Mm -hmm. So I was consulting for Plus T, which was a division of theory in Japan. So I was working for fast retailing. It's under, they have Uniqlo, J Brand, et cetera. And it was actually a collection that was Danielle Sherman for Plus T. So I had that which was financially supporting this level of independence, right? Being here in LA and not having a full-time job. That was my first consulting gig. While I was consulting, I then had the headspace to kind of create 
something. Did I know it was going to be jewelry? Not necessarily, but I knew I wanted to create something. And when I was thinking about all of the things that I've done and maybe haven't pursued, I've always had a penchant for heavy, big, bold pieces, but I've never found the pieces that I would want to wear. Maybe they feel too old or too vintage or too specific. So that's where I kind of landed on jewelry is I feel like I had the headspace to have more creative thinking because I didn't have a full-time job. And then I would go to the Getty here in Los Angeles. And this is a secret source, which they have an incredible library. So if you're interested in architecture, art, jewelry, et cetera, you can get a library pass and you can be studying and reading 10 books at a time and sourcing these amazing reference books. And you're sitting in a Richard Meyer building and like learning about anything that interests you. Sure beats Pinterest. (laughs) (laughs) But to that point too, I think this is one of the things that makes what you have created so special as well as you're not looking at the same references that everyone else is looking at. And that diversity of and richness of research is hugely important. Even if it ends up being something totally different from what you're looking at, it starts in a different place. It starts in a unique place and a personal place because you're the one who has to pull those books. You're the one who has to set that path. It's not being served to you by an algorithm. Absolutely. Nor is it a brand that one's working for and you're like, I'm designing within this box, right? So like, Of course, I was intimidated by the fact that I'm educating myself about the history of jewelry. So starting from the Egyptians and onward, right? But I was excited by it because you would always find me in a library at NYU. Like I was that kid. I just love to research things and dive deep and get into the nitty gritty. And then, of course, I'm a very tactile person. So I really love looking at books. So I studied the history of jewelry. And that's where I discovered the retro period, which in jewelry, it's different than fashion. In jewelry, it's 1930s, 1940s, after World War I. And the jewelry was markedly different than Art Nouveau and what came before. So it was bold. It was big. It was statement. It was mixing two-tone colors of gold, white gold with rose gold and rose gold with yellow, et cetera. And like pieces were convertible. And so you could wear a necklace that had a clip-on brooch that was attached to it, then also wear it as a brooch that also then became an earring. Like I learned about this era, which I was so inspired by. And I'm like, you know what? This is going to be where I begin. I love that. So what does that process look like in terms of a timeline? Because it's different for everyone. And being a parent, having just moved to LA, still have work coming in and then dedicating time to this as well, I wouldn't imagine that it would be the world's speediest process. But I'm wondering if you can take me through sort of that timeline and what next steps were. Absolutely. So yeah, it wasn't speedy. And that was the beauty (laughs) of it. Like, Yeah, we weren't doing a fashion, you know, calendar where we have to deliver per season according to this time. So I took three years, essentially, of building it, of studying, you know, it began with studying at the Getty. And then once I discovered retro jewelry, then the next step, I was like, well, I need to see this stuff. Like, I got to see these pieces, I have to feel them, I have to wear them, I have to understand them, like, who are the makers of these beautiful retro pieces. So then I started going to Vegas, and they have these amazing antique shows of like 400 plus vendors. So I would go there and I would walk up through every aisle and hit up every vendor that looked interesting. And then I was discovering retro jewelry in person. So I would pick a George L'Enfant, who's like the maker of retro jewelry and like the most acclaimed goldsmith, 
chain maker, et cetera, works a lot for Cartier. And I would hold his pieces. And then I, I was educated also by the dealers. So like they would take me in and say, oh, this is important because of this, or look at this hallmark of the owl. And this means that. And so I learned there too. So that was part of my education was not just studying in the books. Cause that's one aspect of it, but then was also like feeling the pieces and understanding how they work together and how they were crafted. And the biggest takeaway from that was there were a lot of chunky bracelets and chunky necklaces, but what was missing was like chains. So I was like, why do I come out of the show meeting with like 400 vendors and I see two chains? And I was like, that's where we're going to begin the brand and we're going to launch the brand doing chain. And since then, that's what we've been doing. That's kind of what we've become known for. Everything from lightweight, our column chains, one of which you now own, which is awesome. And wearing. <laughs> and wearing, I see that. Haven't taken it off. <laughs> Yay, good. So it doesn't tarnish. It's 18K. You're fine. And then everything from lightweight pieces to heavyweight pieces that really reference those retro pieces that I had first read about and then experienced in person. So that was kind of stage two. And then it was like, how am I going to begin? Like, I knew how to do a tech pack. I know how to sew. I know how to like create a tailored piece. Like, I don't know how to create chain from scratch, right? So I was sculpting. Like, I'd get sculpy clay. I found the right clay. And I started sculpting super large forms of links. And so what that gave me is one, I could craft it from scratch. So like it was something that, yes, it never existed before. Mm -hmm. But then I could also understand the proportion of how it worked and how it fit together and how big the jump ring was or the connector link, et cetera. So like I crafted that and then I would take my clay samples, similar beginning to my 16-year-old beginning. Love this. And I would meet with Italian jewelers. Was there a reference book of Italian jewelers? How are you doing that? Where are you finding them? <laughs> Thankfully, I had someone who works with my husband, Camilla Frenzy. Her mom was like a head auctioner at one of the largest auctioner houses in the world. And she, to this day, works in jewelry. And so when I like am in kind of a rut and I'm like, where do I begin? Like she's my first phone call. And she had one factory in New York that she had worked with. And she says, I recommend working with this factory, at least just to start. Yeah. However, in the end, it didn't work out. Like the prices were <laughs> astronomical. I'm like, wait, I'm pricing out like three times Vidora, Cartier, et cetera. Like who's going to buy my pieces? <laughs> Four factories in, five factories in, I finally found a home. But it definitely was like similar to the wardrobe stylist days of like cold calling, looking up, except we're Googling this time versus looking up a directory and walking in and bringing my clay samples and then selling them on my fashion career. Because mm -hmm. what else are they going to believe? Like I'm a person coming yeah. in with clay samples. How are they going to trust me and invest in me? Because as much as I'm investing in them at this point, they're investing in me yeah. too. And so then I thankfully found a home where... The person who believed in me, who runs the factory, was interested in my background and took heart to what I was saying. And he started making my samples. So it like it took a very long time. And then it took a year for us from there after I had my clay samples made into like four little one inch length pieces of chain. Then from there, I then had to mix our own gold. So before I launched like an 18 inch chain, the gold color had to be perfected. So that took a year. So you made your own gold. We make our own gold. Why? Many reasons. So 
you cannot manipulate your gold color unless you manipulate the alloys going into it. So anything that makes up 18 carats, something that's not pure 24, it has to be a blend of zinc and copper and 24 carat pure gold. But you have to mix the alloys until you get the right blend. But that blend is not easy to accomplish. So not only are you having a factory entrust in you and your samples, and they've basically made nothing from you, like it's fully a firm belief in a handshake. They then are mixing your gold. So then there's an investment of them mixing your proprietary blend. And that takes time. But the beauty of it is because I'm self-owned and self-operated and don't have investors and all of those other people, we launch when we are ready. And that's always been a dream. That's a luxury. It's a luxury. Can it be done? Absolutely. But like you have to be self-funded, but then where's that money coming from? Well, the money was coming from consulting, you know? So that was fully supporting a very costly operation, which fine jewelry is incredibly costly. And this is before I've sold one piece, right? And then we launched with Vogue and Nicole Phelps through Sally Singer, found out about the collection and wrote a really special feature about the brand. And that's how we launched. I mean, you launched with Vogue, right? I mean, that is like not a bad way of going about it. And also for anyone who doesn't know, like Nicole Phelps and Sally are legends in the industry, have literally seen everything and everyone and do not take it lightly themselves what they're going to write about because it's their reputation too. So that's so incredible on so many levels. How did you feel when all of these pieces finally came together after thinking about this and working on this, investing in this for so long, and then to have someone outside say, not only yes, but like, we're going to give you a dream launch, like the perfect situation. It's just like a sigh of relief, right? It's like, I think in running a business, like it's those rare opportunities where you're like, finally give yourself a little pat on the back, you know? But what I've learned throughout my career is like, you have to firmly believe in something. And if you're excited by it, other people will be excited by it. Okay. So you have this small assortment for launch. Yes. How did you start thinking, because you have to start thinking about this almost immediately, what the next edition will be and where you will expand. And on one hand, that has to be fed through creativity. On the other hand, you also have market feedback and customer feedback. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that early extension and expansion of that initial assortment. Well, what I did really early on is I started having trunk shows. So the trunk shows gave me the visibility into who my customer is. So My sister, I would just work off of her original community of friends here in Los Angeles, anyone I knew here in Los Angeles. So even people who weren't necessarily the customer, because not everyone, Mm -hmm. understandably so, can afford this price point, just to get feedback and have an understanding of what people gravitate towards right off the bat was incredibly helpful. And I think the trunk shows helped inform me that at the end of the day, most people were gravitating towards the chain. So I was like, I need to build this out. And so then I get back and I'm like crafting chain, more chain and more chain and more chain out of these clay samples, which to this day, I'm still sculpting. Like every chain that's in our collection, the column chain that you have, it's all started from a place of a sculpted piece. And then from there, it was really, what else can I create that maybe exists but doesn't exist to a place where I would want to wear it. And that was where lockets kind of began was that mentality was I love the idea of a locket, 
And I had one when I was a kid at the classic oval with like a single diamond in the center. However, I wouldn't wear that today. So it's like, how can we bring it to now? How can we modernize this? Which it's a concept like I was researching that's existed since 4400 BC. Wow. Queen Elizabeth I was gifting lockets to her knights. People were using lockets before the term even locket existed. It was considered a talisman. And they would have like deities who were painted on the inside. So like the idea of the locket has existed over the course of human history. And so then the lockets, which also took eight to nine months to launch, we kind of embarked on. And then I was able to launch that. And I think it was 2021. And the same clients that I'd working with before now finally had something that they could hang off their chain. And what I learned from that is that pendants, lockets, what have you, sell chains and chains sell lockets. Mm -hmm. So then it was often like, women and partners coming in and being like, I want to buy this as a gift for, you know, my partner or my wife or whomever. And we'd make a custom locket for them and they would pick their stones and we would do custom engraving and still do custom engraving and all the photo assembly as well in-house. So it was like a full service locket. Which is amazing because there's nothing worse than getting a present and then getting homework. A hundred percent, especially if you're paying a certain amount. I think you have a certain level of expectation. And I asked my one of my lapidary artisans that we work with, I said, is there any easier way to approach this design that maybe I don't know that hasn't dawned on me or I haven't figured out yet? And they're like, basically, you're like a private jeweler to all of your clients. I was like, that's exactly what I don't want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's all hand carved. So all of our stones, it's essentially you're taking a rock and you're making slivers of this rock to fit into a perfect bezel where there's not a single gap. So it's not a prong set piece. Like prong set pieces, there's room for something being off by a millimeter. But in our lockets, there's like zero tolerance, which is a fashion term. Like you have tolerance built into a pattern. So they're incredibly challenging to produce to this day, but all the better. I love an intolerant locket. So <laughs> tell me about what people put inside, because I'm sure your clients have run the gamut. So what is probably the most popular thing? And then what is the most out of the box request you've gotten? Most popular are children, definitely, or grandchildren. And then I would say the most alternative thing, which is actually a Victorian era concept, is a lock of hair. So a child's first haircut, mm. an animal that has passed away, and so the hair of them. But the predominant buyer is putting photos of their family inside. So it's like kids with a side of witch. <laughs> exactly. But it's funny because in the 1890s, it was common to buy a locket and to put your husband's hair who may have passed in the locket and yeah. you would weave the hair together and create some type of pattern, et cetera. So it's interesting. So people are like, is this like the weirdest request you've received? I'm like, you know, what? it's not that weird. Like this was a common thing. I love that. Okay, so you spent those first couple of years really focused on the direct-to-consumer business, the trunk shows, really learning your customers. And then relatively recently, you have expanded and have some retail partners. Can I tell you when I opened Net-A-Porte and I saw one of your lockets like on that main page, just personally, I was so thrilled. But I mean, we're talking Net-A-Porte and Bergdorf's like really important places. 
How has that gone? Do you love it? Is it terrifying? What has that transition been like? Absolutely. It's exciting. It's thrilling, exhilarating. It's daunting at the same time, right? So these are the big guys like Bergdorf's, Netaporte before Barney's, like working in retail, working in fashion, like you don't have a sell through, you are out and you are out quickly. And so at the end of the day, that's what matters, right? Even as beautiful as one's pieces may be or thoughtful as one's pieces may be, like at the end of the day, you have to perform. And when you know that going in, I think you can be a bit more level-headed because you also know the reality and you can also be smart about how you control the buy. So luckily, I think we were in a position where it was Bergdorf's and Net-A-Porte coming to us and being like, what can we sell? And, you know, Bergdorf's happened through Tommy Tom. Like he connected me directly to Yumi Shin, who's VP of Bergdorf's. I was very lucky for that. And then from there, I brought my whole collection and it was like, what can we sell? And I was like, whatever you want. Of course, you're Bergdorf Goodman. But they were like, let's launch with your lockets and your chains, right? So it was like, absolutely. So of course, you give them your best pieces, but you also give them the pieces that you know, based on your history, are going to perform. And I think the same thing with Net-A-Porte is it was a similar reaction. I mean, ultimately, Hillary, that came from you. Like Net-A-Porte indirectly came from you seeing a necklace on Jane Herman when you guys were going out on a walk and you're like, what is that on your neck? And Jane was like, oh, it's my friend Sherman Field and I've known Danielle from all these years. And you're like, what is that? And like very quickly, I got in the car with my jewelry and met you outside your house during COVID on a little coffee table or whatever that was outside. All my pieces kind of falling everywhere, but you got to see the pieces yourself. And then from there, you had gifted your friend, Catherine Power, one of our pieces, like a pair of earrings, and then introduced Catherine. And then Catherine was wearing our necklace and one of our lockets in a meeting with Allison Lonis from Netaporte. And the first thing from what Catherine said, she said, what is that on your neck? Mm-hmm. And Catherine's like, oh, it's Sherman Field. Like, you guys need to carry them. And so then Allison, like on her way back that same day, was DMing me and being like, I'm putting you in communication with my team. And so, you know, how these things happen is kind of wild and serendipitous. Like, we've just been lucky and lucky for the people who have also kind of helped us along the way. And then those fortuitous exchanges have led to bigger things. And then the, you know, smaller wholesale accounts were starting to open up to, like we're working with the Along 23, which is in Dallas. And they were really excited about it. And I was doing a trunk show in Dallas and I invited them and they came on the last day and they were like, how can we carry the brand. And so they put together an assortment and, you know, have been selling us as well. So, you know, as we grow, we're definitely going to consider and open up to more wholesale accounts. But I do think the growth there has been organic, even though it doesn't sound organic in the way that these are big retailers, because normally you start with small family run wholesale accounts. But we were lucky to launch with both the big retailers and then also the small kind of mom and pop stores as well. I just think at the end of the day, especially for folks who have been in the industry for a long time, you just have these moments when you see something, you take one look at it, and you know it's a thing and you know that everyone is going to lose their mind over it. And then it's easy for everything to accelerate because everyone who comes across it feels the same way. Oh, thank you. I think that 
the way that people are shopping now, too, it's a combination of wanting to vote with their wallet. So wanting mm. to invest in brands where they appreciate the story and the ethics and the point of view. But it's also thinking about, OK, rather than shop in a more disposable way, let's buy fewer, better things that are forever pieces and to really look for certain things like quality and craftsmanship. So I'm wondering if you have any insights that you could share about being the best, most thoughtful shopper, especially in this specific category. I think ultimately you have to feel everything that you buy, right? So I think online shopping in particular, you can't just go buy the photo because as we all know, through all of our social platforms, like things look incredible and may have a certain statement to them, but then you get them and they're hollow and they're light and they feel like they're going to fall apart. Sure. You can look at, is it stamped with an 18K? Is it 14K? Is it 20? Like, what is it? So you can look at the stamps. They're called hallmarks, et cetera. But you really ultimately need to feel it and then you need to wear it and need to understand it. And to me, that's the number one thing. And you need to know where it's made. I think part of the reason why our pieces feel the way they feel is they're made here in Los Angeles by top, top, top craftspeople that I was fortunate to meet and come across and still work with from beginning of launch, you know, the same team. And it's really two people at the factory who specifically only make our chains. Like the average consumer is not going to know that tidbit of information. But when you research a company and you read the bio or you read the about to understand where is it being produced, what material is it being made in, and then to actually feel it in person, I feel like is the answer. So obviously jewelry is very personal and unique and distinct to everyone who wears it, but there are some truths as well. So if someone was starting out and starting to build their collection and really wanted to invest in pieces from you, what would you suggest in terms of starting out? I think the way to start is, you know, part of why we started the column chain, which is our entry price point necklace, is so those can afford that piece along with a locket. So that was the intention behind that is it's an investment piece being the price point that it is, but that you could then in time purchase other pieces to wear along with it. And then the cigar ring, like having a weighty ring, I feel like don't go small, go big. So like, get the cigar <laughs> ring. Like that's my kind of go-to in that category. And then the oval chain link is to this day, like our best seller, best performer, because it's very intricate and the design behind it is something that people are excited about. So I think in finding your link and finding your length is like the two things I always start with people. And so maybe a chain ultimately is the best investment because I think to this day, it's still hard to find weighty chains that you can wear and pass on. That's the idea. I love that. I'm also curious about stones. There are certain stones that are very well known and beloved. And then I think there are obviously some that are a little more under the radar or a little bit less loved or a little bit less top of mind. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on a stone that you feel like deserves a little bit more time in the spotlight because it's actually really great. Hands down, tiger's eye, which I just love. And like 
Did I find pieces made with tiger's eye from retro period? Absolutely. Like that was a prize stone for that time. And it's incredibly hard to source a good tiger's eye with very few inclusions, et cetera, because all stones have inclusions, which are the things that make up the stone. So it's flawless to some degree, but there's stuff in there, right? Yeah. So I think tiger's eye mustard chalcedony, it's a mustard color, doesn't get a lot of love in our community. I absolutely love the color because I'm very much a rust mustard fan. And then nephrite jade, it's this green color, which I know you're familiar with. Mm. That stone to me like supersedes many, many, many stones that we see. Like we see lapis and that's been a stone that's been used from the beginning of time practically, which I also love. But I do think these lesser known, lesser utilized stones definitely are incredibly special. Let's talk a little bit about inspiration. What is inspiring you now? How do you find inspiration? And what is sort of your research and development process like now with all of this data, with a lot of insights? How does that change the process? You know, to be honest, I am not that heavily influenced by feedback, market research, merchandising. Of course, what performs is helpful, right? So I knew that chains were performing. And so I dived deeper into chains. Mm -hmm. However, I've always gone by fully intuition, which is like, what am I excited about? What do I want to wear? Like, what do I want to see my friends wearing? And the idea behind Shermanfield is my grandparents had multiple lines in London starting in the late 1950s all the way through the late 1960s, one of which was Shermanfield. And Shermanfield was like a high-end tailoring company for women and they would create like sets. So you'd have your little pinafore, your little jacket with like the matching skirt with the matching tights. I was like, it's Shermanfield because it stood for the same thing, which was a commitment to quality and craft without compromise, which is really the two things that I always go by. And in that way, it's incredibly intuitive. So I still go back to books. And I think that just harks back to like loving the opportunity to be in a library for hours. So I guess that would be how I draw inspiration to date. Danielle, you have built something that is so incredible, and it is just such a pleasure getting a chance to catch up with you and talk about it and talk about your backstory. I can't thank you enough. This was just a delight on so many levels, and I appreciate you and your generosity of time and spirit so much. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Hillary. I mean, seriously, like, it's a huge honor. A huge thank you to the incredible fine jewelry designer and entrepreneur, Danielle Sherman of Sherman Field. Make sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And... While you're there, I'd also be so grateful if you would rate and review us. If you have any guest suggestions or any other feedback, drop us a line at podcast at whowhatwhere.com or you can find us on social at whowhatwhere. See you next Wednesday on Who What Where with Hillary Kerr. This episode was produced by Hillary Kerr and Olivia Capaletti. Editing is by Natalie Thurman. 
Our audio engineers are at Treehouse Recording in Los Angeles, California, and our music is by Jonathan Leahy. Thank you to eBay for sponsoring today's episode. eBay's authenticity guarantee is all about keeping it real. eBay's authenticators are leaders in their fields with meticulous eyes making sure your pieces, whether it's sneakers or watches or collectibles, arrive as authentic as your style and worthy of your collection. As experts, they know the true difference between a real and a fake. Real carries that rare, distinguished feel, the weight of pure platinum, exquisite scent of toga leather, the tight stitching on a pair of dunks, the brilliance of real diamonds. So rest assured, your Rolex moves just like a Rolex should, and that colorway on your Jordan Royals will always be on point. The details inspected, the fakes rejected. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with the eBay Authenticity Guarantee. Everyone deserves real. Visit ebay.com for terms.